in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Nathan Lutz. How you doing, sir? I am enjoying a fantastic Halloween day and have watched plenty of spooky movies. Ooh, that sounds good. And I'm excited today because we have a first-time guest, which is one of my favorite things ever. Our first-time guest today is Ms. Carly Levy. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. We are actually recording this on Halloween. It's funny. Uh, we've gotten off a big block of doing scary movies, but uh, here we are doing... We're coming out of it. By the time this drops, we'll be well past that. So uh, what's the last movie you saw, Carly? This whole month, I haven't really seen any movies because I've been using that time to catch up on some TV shows. But the last movie that I saw was in theaters, um, Dear Evan Hansen. And yeah, I wasn't um, I wasn't too thrilled with it. Um, and it's disappointing because the musical is one of my favorite musicals of all time. So when I heard they were making the movie and that Ben Platt was going to star in it, I was like, yes, I've got to see it there. There is no way they can screw this up. And they found a way, sadly. It's um, the only thing I could say that I liked about it was I liked um, what the director did towards the ending that he had a little bit more in the end. And Ben Platt was honestly the best singer out of the whole cast. But that was really about it. I, um, I really thought that they could have done a better job with that movie. Yeah, they're not all winners and you don't know unless you check them out and that's okay. Nathan, what about you? What's the last movie you saw? Well, I could list a bunch of Halloween movies, but I think more importantly, I have watched Dune in theaters. It's the second movie I've watched in theaters since this whole coronavirus thing. And oh my goodness, it is transcendently good. So it sounds like The Sleeper was awakened for you then. I've been excited for that movie for a long time. And my goodness, it delivers. The only complaint that I have is that part two isn't already here yet. It does end a little bit abruptly, but... Once that happens, this is not going to be two movies. This is going to be one six-hour movie fest, essentially. I I'm, I need to get to that. It looks it looks compelling for sure. And being that it's October, I watched Arachnophobia. Never seen it before, and I had a lot of fun with this one. In fact, I wish I had gotten it when I was younger. I didn't realize it was uh, maybe I wouldn't call it kid-friendly per se, but it's definitely a younger audience could enjoy it. It's a whole lot of fun. So uh, if you want a scary movie that's not really that scary. But just fun, arachnophobia, good time. I don't know if I wouldn't call it scary. Like, I would picture it scary because I'm not a spider person at all. And I do remember in a lot of those shots, they would actually show the close-ups of the spider, like a really deep close-up. And it was just, and I'm telling you, a film like that, I feel like if it was remade today, of course, everything would be CGI-centric. And I'm glad how with this one, it was more kind of, I would say, maybe animatronic. Yeah. So I feel like when I see something that's more animatronic, it's so much more realistic than anything CGI. I mean, hey, look at Jurassic Park. Definitely. Yep. And I've said it so many times in the show, I love practical effects over computer-driven ones. 
I think computer ones are just now at the precipice of getting good enough, you know, where we don't have to sit there and go like, ah, man. So um, there, that meant like there were a couple of decades in there, especially as you go back and look at that and go like, oof. So. But it also means that there's a bunch of movies like, for example, Attack of the Leopon, which is a horror movie about giant bunnies, which is shot practically because, of course, that's the only thing you could do at the time. But it means that they're being attacked by giant bunnies running around. So if this was done through some sort of CGI thing, it would just look dumb and you'd shove it away. But as it is, there's a character to it that is hilariously bad but hilarious i don't know man i i fear rabbits in a healthy way now that after we covered monty python's holy grail a couple months ago i mean uh, you really gotta watch out for the rabbits they're quite they're quite dangerous so they have those little teeth yes um all right today's movie that we're gonna be covering is what carly it is the out of towners the 1970 version not the 1999 version sorry no, that's great. And so this stars Jack Lemon and Sandy Dennis. And it's amazingly how prominent these two are. There's a there's a bunch of supporting characters, but they are very tertiary to these main two. It comes out in 1970. It uh, I've, The data for this is a little bit fuzzy, so I cannot tell you exactly where it plays in the box office that year. But Love Story was the number one movie that year by the same director who's directing the movie that we're covering today, Arthur Hiller. So... IMDb gives the out-of-towners a 7.1. The Rotten Tomatoes critics give it a 63%. The audience score of Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 69%, which these look low to me. I'm I'm a little confused by that. Um, This was nominated for two Golden Globe Awards, Best Performance in a Motion Picture Musical for both Sandy Dennis and Jack Lemmon. And it, uh, Writers Guild of America Award winner for Best Comedy, written for the uh, screen uh, to writer Neil Simon. And, uh, you know, this movie has some mixed reviews. Uh, like, let's just start with that. Uh, Carly, had you seen this movie before? What was your reaction to it? And what was it like coming back to it now? So the first time I saw it, I believe I was a teenager. I'm going to guess around 14. I remember renting it um, on DVD from my public library. And it was actually introduced to me by my parents. Um, they they saw it a um, long time ago and they introduced it to me. And in fact, uh, my parents actually were the ones who really introduced me to a lot of classic films because back then I had an appreciation for them, but it wasn't something that I would see unless my parents gave me a recommendation. But yeah, I remember I saw it and I thought it was really funny. You know, I liked it a lot. It felt very relatable because I feel like I could picture myself in that kind of situation where if I'm in a, a new place, I don't know anybody, I don't know where I'm going or anything. I could just imagine running into all these worst case scenarios. And that's basically what this film does. This film basically shows um, a couple who are going to New York because um, the husband, uh, George, has um, a job interview and he thinks that he's a lock for it. So he invites his wife to come with him to this job interview in New York. And they go through all of these crazy scenarios, just the worst kind of luck. Um, in order uh, while they're in New York. And yeah, the movie did get a lot of mixed reviews. Some people felt like, I think I read one where they said like, oh, they felt like the film was kind of sloppy in its filmmaking. One of the reviews even said, oh, um, in sen- in the Central Park scene, it looks like there's a, a boom mic that, just, lay- that ju- just lays there between the two couple while they're talking and they don't even bother trying to remove it. And the funny thing is I was re-watching that scene so I could try to find that boom mic. I couldn't find it. I don't know. Maybe you guys did. I don't know. I couldn't find it. I didn't see it. And 
I don't know if maybe later versions have touched it up, but maybe because they said that it's possible maybe that boom mic was there because of the ratio that the film was in. Maybe, that maybe just yeah, that they couldn't help but capture. But yeah, some were acting like oh, like it was like sloppy film work, and then. Um, According to IMDb, they said that the mayor of New York at the time wasn't satisfied in the film because he felt like it was very anti-New York because there actually were, because in the movie, they talk about all these strikes that happen, of course, when the couple decides to visit New York, that there's all these um, strikes going on that ruin their fun. And I guess those strikes really did happen in 1968. Mm-hmm. So we felt like, yeah, this was kind of a negative interpretation of New York, basically. Yeah. And in fairness, it's not impossible. I remember when I was a kid, I don't remember the exact year, the garbage men were on strike then too. And it smelled really bad. And it was summer. And it was, it smelled like hot garbage. I mean, for no better words. I mean, so I mean, it can happen. It's a thing. So I mean, um, should you travel to New York? I, I wouldn't expect that to be the case. But uh you're right. It's not a glittering endorsement for New York City. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Nathan, what about you? Had you seen this one before? This was new to me. So uh, I had not seen either version, the 1970 version or the 90s version. Uh, so yeah, this was a new experience. Uh for the viewers, I'm not really a fan or a follower of romantic comedy as a movie genre for the most part. So um, there are really very few of these that I've watched. Um, so it's it's fun to see one that has such a sort of relatable premise to, uh, I, I don't know what you guys can think of as your worst travel experience ever or the craziest thing you've ever had to deal with uh probably for me it was when i was pretty young and we had a flight back from europe we'd we'd done a family trip and the flight got redirected such that we had to split up so i flew with my brother and my parents took my sister and uh we went to Baltimore randomly and then had to make our way somehow. I guess we got picked up at some point uh, to get back to the Philadelphia area. And it was just really complicated. And ever since then, I had a, uh, a deep fear of being separated due to travel complications. And boy, does this movie deliver on that. Well, growing up in Philadelphia, you may not be aware of this, but other airports around the entire country operate better. So <laughs> I, I cannot tell you how many times I've been delayed, rerouted. Philadelphia is almost like, oh, do I have to go through that? <laughs> like, So, uh, no, that's uh, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I was my first time on this one, too. I'm a huge Jack London fan. I love Neil Simon. This has been one of those things on the Venn diagram of things that I should get into. And I've known that for a while. And I even considered picking it for a dealer's choice at one point. And um, I was really glad we got to do this movie because uh, it is just something that I think is underrated and is very, very fun to go through. I'm really perplexed how the critics have been so hard on it. And I mean, Leonard Malton, who's one of my, probably my critics that I like read the most. I've got his movie guide book that's like four inches thick and reviews every movie known to mankind. Uh, You know, he gave it one and a half stars and said it was excruciating. He said it's hard to get through and he felt like it wouldn't, it wasn't made any easier by the unsympathetic lead characters. Um, And I just, 
he even rated the new one better, which I just, uh, the, yeah. So, I mean, Leonard Maltin's uh, really cold on this one. And, and that's, that's a little cross section of what I'm seeing across here. And I'm maybe I'm all pleasant. Maybe I'm butterflies and sunshine and rainbows, but this is a good movie and I liked it. We can get into the details of this later. My, my sort of, I think that that criticism might come from the sense that things are just happening. And I think that's the intent of the movie. And depending on how you're trying to watch it, that might be where the humor comes from. But if you're not looking for that, if you're looking for something that's a little bit more in the in a more classic humor vein, where each beat is accented somehow, things don't just happen. Uh, there isn't a lot of music in this movie. And so a lot of beats aren't played up for the crowd you just have to experience them with the couple which again might be the source of the humor in the movie where wow this is so real feeling and that's why it's funny and scary but it's also if you're coming into it looking for a guided comedy routine this is not that movie Mm. well you're definitely leading us into the first segment here as we talk about the plot but we're gonna let the viewers know there will be spoilers that lie ahead so we will be back after these messages Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you what happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up you get the classic film jerks podcast find the classic film jerks podcast on all the major platforms all right we're back and this is your final warning there will be spoilers that lie ahead so if you haven't seen the out of towners from 1970 and you may want to go back and check this movie out it's a lot of fun and Nathan, for those who haven't seen it since 1970, do you want to give people a refresher? George and Gwen Kellerman set out with the maximum preparation and time for a quick flight from a small town, Ohio, to the Big Apple itself, where George Kellerman will be interviewing for a corporate vice president job. But when their flight is redirected to Boston, their misadventures have only just begun. A transit strike and miscues with the hotel ultimately lead the couple to an ill-advised midnight walk through the rain in New York. They're robbed, caught up in a car chase, then kidnapped and dumped in Central Park. After an uncomfortable night's sleep, they wake up to keep going, nearly get blown up by a manhole cover, then accidentally wind up in the midst of a clash of Cuban protesters. At last, they get back to their hotel, and George Kellerman quickly prepares for his interview, marching to it with the exhausted determination of a man approaching the gallows. He gets back to the hotel, happy to have gotten the offer, but Gwen can't stomach the idea of staying in New York for one more minute than they have to. He rejects the job, and they fly straight home with a detour to Cuba because their plane has been hijacked. Oh my god! (laughs) So, um, let's pick up where we left off here before the break. So the critics are a little bit cooler on this one, and I think that we've both, I think we've all three mentioned it. It's, It's highly relatable. It's very realistic in terms of how it feels. And Carly, what is it you feel like is making it feel that way versus something that might be a little more slapsticky and goofy well slapsticky and goofy is definitely what i would call the remake um which i did see um so that way i can compare um the two of them 
And yeah, what I absolutely loved, why I felt like the 1970s version was so much more superior to the 1999 version was just the fact that um, it's like what Nathan said, this is the kind of movie where things just happen. You know, we don't know what is going to happen. It's like these things just happen. Same with life. It just happens in the most random way. All this bad luck. And to me, it felt like the remake really was very slapsticky, very formulaic. And I like how with this movie, you just never knew what was going to happen. Even the way that it ended, I never thought it was going to end the way it did. <laughs> You're right. <Definitely> not. <laughs> if anyone says so, they're lying. I know that for a fact. But, um, but yeah, no, I'm, I feel like what I love so much about this movie is just how situational everything is. And like we said before, very relatable. In fact, um, for Neil Simon himself, definitely relatable for him. The, the big inspiration for why he even made this screenplay in the first place was because the same thing happened to him where he was supposed to, um, what was it? He was supposed to fly to Boston to work on a theater production, How Now Dow Jones. And basically he was caught in a snowstorm. He lost his luggage and he spent three hours getting to the hotel in the icy streets of Boston. Whereas he was supposed to be there within 10 minutes and it ended up taking him hours just to get there. So he figured, you know what, this would actually make a good one act play. So um, this one act play actually turned out not to be a one act play at all. He ended up just making this into um, a film screenplay instead because he felt like this wasn't going to um, be very good to watch on stage considering all of the locations that it would better translate on film. And he's definitely right about that. And it's so interesting that you're saying that because hardship and a difficult time and life's experiences that are thrown at you through a creative person's lens so often yields great art. It's true for musicians. It's true for artists like the visual arts. And it's true for writers like it was for Neil Simon on this one. It's funny. I found myself being a little bit jealous of what you're saying there, Carly. I'm an architect and so is Nathan. Well, we're one of those uh, creative fields where I'm sitting there going like, I can't channel hardship like that into really great architecture so much <laughs> so um i don't know if that's fair nathan we get enough of uh in the construction side of oh my gosh this building that we're working on it also has these undrawn gas lines in it that we have to fix no no that's just more problems <laughs> but it takes me back to i think will rogers said everything's funny when it doesn't happen to you and i think this movie does a really good job that these are all terrible things that have happened. And in honesty, a lot of them have happened to you, not so much getting caught up in a Cuban riot um, or, a, you know, a revolt in front of a diplomat, but um, it like losing your luggage or missing your train connection or being late. I mean, honestly, these are actually a lot of things that are really common. They just don't all happen all at one time. And this is the, as you mentioned, Carly, it's one bad thing after another stringing them together. And it's just so difficult to just do something that's seemingly, seemingly so easy on a normal day. But I think that that is really a very funny thing. And I know some people, honestly, one of our co-hosts, Brian, hates bad things happening to the main character. I'm suspecting this movie is a miss for him, but um, I like it. I like it because we all have hardships in our lives. And I honestly do think when you're sitting at a barbecue, 
you tell people all the crap that happened to you and you're the butt of your own joke and, you know, maybe you embellish a little bit, maybe you've jazzed it up a little bit and you remove yourself almost in a third person way of talking about this sad person going through this sad event and everybody laughs and they do so not because it's mean, but because they too have had this hardship and you're kind of sharing this human experience and I, I may be over-talking it up, but I mean, I just think that that connection to those characters is in this. And I, I like the screwball road trip kind of concept of a movie, but there's something very touching at the same time with this. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I think the only sort of challenge here is that you have to care about that because there isn't a lot else that's given to us in this movie. We never find anything else really about George Kellerman or Gwen Kellerman except that they have kids. The kids exist. They theoretically, or at least Gwen does, care about them and want to get back to them at some point. And... For some reason, George wants this job at some point, but we don't know why. We don't know why they want to leave Ohio. Uh, He starts out by making all these excuses, and it's played for a laugh early that he has to come up with lots of reasons that they should really want to go to New York. But Gwen points out, like, she doesn't really know why he's so excited to go. And by the end, you realize that this was all for nothing. And that's a comedy beat that's played that way. But The risk here is that we are more witnessing things that can happen, but we're not really experiencing why we care that they're happening to these people. And that is the, that is the one big point that the remake has over this, which is that it really delves into why the main characters are doing this trip, why they're going and why it's so important that they succeed and they deal with this whole thing. So the couple's drama that I think is the weak point of the original movie, where they're sort of yelling at each other and they're coming to strife because of this travel, because they're making all these decisions, they're not motivated quite as strongly as they are in the remake. So that is, for me, the place where the remake is better, where the original just feels a lot less overblown and over the top in the actual situations themselves, even though they are equally and in some cases more insane. Oh, interesting. See, I just feel like you've taken me back to 1970. So with that 1960s mentality, this feels like a 60s movie. It is in the 70s. Oh, yeah. It it feels like a 60s movie. You've taken me back to the 1960s. So I feel like I kind of just already assumed very career-driven man and, you know, very quote unquote traditional roles in the family and like you know he feels the pressure to this is what I'm supposed to do I'm supposed to be the best at my business he wants to be better than everybody else that he works with and he's in plastics and he just really wants to be the best plastics man that he can in his mind that's success and um, viewing that through modern day lenses where that's not necessarily all that a man is to be successful and to be there for your kids and stuff like that as this movie finally realizes in the end uh, he goes through the vast majority of the movie being very much caught up in the, you know, this is, I need to do this. I want this because it has value to me. I'm I'm defined by how big my office is, where my office is, and what mm-hmm. I can do for my, and the things that I can give my family. Um, and he learns that at the end. It's very backloaded, but I mean, it's interesting you say that, Nathan. I just, for whatever reason, just by virtue of when this movie was made and set, knowing history, I just felt like, I had all that and I didn't need that. But your point's valid. I just, um, it's amazing how just simply setting it when it did, did that for me. Carly, do you, I don't know, where do you land on that? Are you more with Nathan on that one? In a way, I could disagree about the fact that um, 
I don't think that the couple's journey in the original was all for nothing. Because when you think about it, it does happen to us in life where we think we know what we want until it actually happens to us. I mean, here George thought that he wanted to live in New York with his wife and his family. And he thought that he had everything all set up it, just like how it, how he pictured it in his mind. But then it's not until he was actually in New York that he realized by the time his interview was over, you know, this isn't how I want to live my life, you know, where every single day is such a, a challenge. You know, he doesn't want to live that way. And look at it this way. It was obviously a blessing in disguise because imagine, I mean, there would be no movie if this was the plot, but it's like, imagine if he did this whole interview over the phone without even going to New York. And then, yay, he got the job. And then him and his family do move to New York and it ends up being hell for everybody, you know, to get from place to place, to have it take you hours to get somewhere where it should only take you a few minutes. So in a way, um, something that could be seen as a tragedy for the couple was actually a blessing because it's not until they went through that whole um, horrific, um, stressful journey that they realized that New York is not where they're meant to be. They're meant to be back in Ohio where they belong. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's a very good point. That's the power of the back part of this movie. I think, I think there's a, the warmth may be too backloaded for some, but I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed the, the journey so much and I did find myself laughing because so often in life when these bad things do start to happen, you can't help but laugh. And um, it's just, yeah, I'm with, I'm, I, I agree with you. Like the realization of not getting what, sorry, getting what you want and realizing it's not really what you wanted. Um, that, that, that's, a good, that's a good moment in this movie. In yeah, terms probably of- Probably the remake, because probably the remake was trying really hard to show like, you know, they probably didn't want audiences to feel like, oh, all this was for nothing, like to go through this whole thing and then not get the job. Like they probably did want to show, okay, he does get his happy ending. He does get the job at the end. And then they do make a life in New York, despite all the chaos, just so everything could just be tied up pleasant and, you know, happily and everything like that. But I don't know, to me, honestly, I, I felt like the message of the original um, hit me um, home a lot more than what the remake was trying to do. Yeah. Now let's talk about the characters and their dynamic. Um, just as characters here. George is this very high strung um, person has ulcers. He's, you know, takes everything very, you know, like very hard on himself. And he's one of those people who likes to control everything. And when he's not in control, he's not, he's not happy. He's very fastidious. And then Gwen in a contrasting way is perhaps sweet, quiet, reserved. And uh, she often demonstrates better common sense. Um, But her, amiable go along to get along personality is really impressive and it's not until this movie really dives in farther i really don't think it's until um she becomes a little bit concerned was like there's a child in need of help here and then i lost my wedding ring where it really starts to come down around her where the it's quite late in the movie where she's the the conflict that you expect to happen so much sooner um emerges I expected a whole lot more bickering in this movie, and uh, I thought Gwen's sweetness actually made most of the ride really good and different than what I was expecting. No, I mean, I definitely agree. And it's funny because I think the first time I saw this movie as a teenager, I kept thinking in my mind that maybe Gwen was kind of um, kind of passive, maybe, like as if she's just a sidekick to George, kind of just 
following him around through everything and that's it um that's how i remembered it back then but then re-watching it recently it actually is very she actually is a very strong character and it's like what you said she is very rational in fact a lot more rational than he is like i love how ironic it is that throughout the whole movie he's telling her oh you've been stressing out this entire trip and it's like excuse me pot calling the kettle black here <laughs> if anything she's the one and it's it's sad because if anything she is the rational one and the fact that she's the one saying hey you know maybe we should get some food right now and he keeps saying no uh no food because we have dinner reservations planned for later but then of course then um they're out of food so now they have to starve all because of um his suggestion so um it's a matter of she does give a lot of helpful tips to george but he kind of keeps dismissing them thinking oh i know what i'm doing i know what i'm doing and then things turn out to be all wrong and um even like what you said um when it comes to things that really really matter to her because we know how she is about kids so obviously see Seeing a lonely kid in a park, she wants to help him. She cares about her marriage. So when she loses her wedding ring, you know, she would spend all day just looking for that wedding ring, even though George acted like he didn't care that the ring was missing, even though he should. He's the one who gave it to her. You know, she she um, she defends what's important to her. You know, her uh, kids are important to her. Her wedding ring is important to her. And she doesn't care if it's not important to her, her husband. She sticks to her guns. That's what I really like about her. Yep. She's not She's not uh, demure to a point where it's... I think she is a strong female character, to your point. It might have not looked like that at first, but uh, I, I actually got to give Neil Simon a lot of credit for writing a good female character on that. And um, I don't know. Nathan, what, did you, what were you expecting? Would you have preferred more... Uh, I, I think a lot of movies in this situation have more bickering between the two. Like, uh, I, I love the movie This Is 40 um, or a movie like... Um, I'm thinking of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World here, which is a movie with a similar level of franticness in its pacing yeah. and vast amounts of couple bickering. Yes, and good point. It does work in that movie, and it, um, I, th- I think... At, at, le- at least for me, and that's and that's a piece of childhood nostalgia for me, so I view it through rose-tinted glasses, but it can work, and I think that would have gone some distance to solving what I perceive as the character thing in the movie, because in the early part of the movie, like you're discussing, Russell, it, it's not really gone into, it's really more just George strong-arms her through a bunch of situations until finally she's had enough and sees some situations that she isn't willing to step aside for because she realizes, hey, this is something that's important right now that has to be done as opposed to, well, maybe I'll just go along with this because it doesn't really matter to me yet. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is a movie that's so driven by its main two actors. And almost, I mentioned earlier, the rest of the world seems to melt away on this movie. It's interesting how so isolated it is to these two characters and how important it is. How do you feel like they did on the casting by selecting Jack Lemmon and Sandy and Dennis Carley? I think you can't pick better people than than who they picked, um, especially considering uh, Jack Lemmon. He's done uh, Neil Simon work before. He did The Odd Couple in 1968. So definitely Neil Simon knew what he was doing when he approached Jack Lemmon about um, starring in this movie and everything. And um based on the research i did um jack lemon he didn't even he he didn't even want to read the script you know immediately he was like i'll do it you know you worked on it 
uh, I'll do it. Like he heard the premise and he was like, yes, I, I would love to be a part of this. And that's it. He, um, I, I loved the, the neuroses that, that he brought into this film. And I thought he had great chemistry with uh, Sandy Den- Dennis. I thought that they were great together. They really played off well with each other, I think. Yeah, I agree completely. And Nathan, what about you? Uh, what are your thoughts on the casting, the actors here? I totally agree. These are two very strong leads here who really sell the crazy situations, have a great amount of sort of one-line reads, almost almost sort of catchphrases on things. Oh my god. So That's a funny. great oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, and they're just gradual level of, they go from something happens to them and they sort of panic or at least George panics really quickly and Gwen sort of wants to take a little bit more backseat and by a little while in the movie that you just get this wonderful sense of hard put upon traveler who has basically given up on expected expecting things to go well and they eventually get kidnapped and they're sitting in the back of the car and maybe they should be scared in this situation but you can just see it on their faces that they're just so tired that they can't they can't even muster up that emotion at the moment. They have such good chemistry between the two. I, I, I so often forgot that I was watching actors. Like they had this very genuine chemistry that just I couldn't believe the dynamic between the two felt like you were watching a married couple. Like uh, she and he did seem to complete each other in a very interesting way. His high structure and motivation with her you know, support slash ability and hurt. Like you mentioned earlier, she's the rational one and the voice of reason in so many cases. And um, this just felt like, how are these two fictional characters? And the reason is we'll go into Neil Simon writes his characters, not with actors in mind, but as characters. And those characters are always form formed very, very heavily out of things he knows. So not only were these situations formed out of things that Simon knows and his mind, these are created from people that he has come into contact with. And I got to give him so much credit to be so adept at being able to see people's personalities, mm-hmm. to understand how they function, to then transpose them into a situation that is based on his own experiences and to make such relatable, good characters. It's the genius of Neil Simon at, at work here. But these two people are so perfect for it. Jack Lemmon is, I love The Odd Couple. The Odd Couple is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. And to see Jack Lemmon and Neil Simon team up again, it, uh, it's a no-brainer. But i got to say, Sandy Dennis, when I look back at her catalog of work, you know, she's probably most known for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I don't think of her as being somebody with comedic uh, abilities. And coming into this, I wasn't really sure what to expect from Sandy Dennis. And i got to say, she, she exceeded all of my expectations in this one. And she just, they were two peas in a pod. They were amazing together. Um, yeah, I agree. I felt like the acting between the two of them was just very, it was very natural. Nothing seemed forced. It didn't seem like any of them had to just, um, it didn't seem like this animated over the top performance, basically. Uh, both of them had natural chemistry. I felt like they were able to react to the situations they were in, in a, in a very natural light, I felt. So I often focus so heavily on director, but I feel like we've talked about him so much on this one with Neil Simon. Nathan. Uh, I find you often critiquing how things are written. What do you think about the writing job that Neil Simon does here? Because, I mean, uh, for those who don't know, Neil Simon is a very, you know, acclaimed play 
writer. I think that the writing is really great. I will criticize the directing of Arthur Hiller around some of these some of these lines where on a stage play, a lot of these scenes would be separated by a little bit of time. You'd be forced to just by set changes and moving from place to place. And I think a lot that some of these lines are written assuming that there's a little bit of space between things to allow things to land and a little bit of breathing room. Uh, and I don't think the script has issues. I think it's just the space between a couple of these scenes that feels like they're kind of falling into one another. Mm-hmm. Carly, what is it you like about Neil Simon as a writer? Um, Neil Simon, honestly, um, he really is my favorite playwright. I've read um, plays in the past. Uh, back when I was in college, I've read... Um, Lost in Yonkers, I read The Odd Couple, and yeah, I just, I love his snappy dialogue, and he really is such a comic genius when it comes to writing neurotic characters. They're just very snappy, they're very quick, and you just can't help but laugh. And I always love neurotic comedies. I mean, um, stuff like Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, uh, Woody Allen films, any kind of neurotic characters like that will, um, will grab my attention. So that's what I absolutely love about Neil Simon, because if anything, I feel like he was one of the originators in neurotic um, characters. That's a very good point. It's interesting you mentioned Woody Allen. Neil Simon was actually a writer for uh, Sid Caesar. Uh, And we mentioned this in the 12 Chairs episode that we covered, which was a Mel Brooks movie. But Mel Brooks was a writer for him as well. And man, this was like a who's who of comedy. Neil Simon was sitting next to Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, Carl Reiner, Mel Tolkien, and uh, Larry Galbert. And these all these guys were writing for another comedic genius himself, Sid Caesar. And it's interesting, the stuff that rubbed off on each other. Um, you know, uh, Neil's such an introvert that he would often just whisper his ideas to other people in the group to bring them forward, you know, with people like Mel Brooks and Reiner taking over the room. But um it's interesting you mentioned Woody Allen because they both have this neurotic character type moments. And it's a big theme in a lot of his, particularly uh, his earlier work, urban neuroses of just kind of like the anxiety of trying to fit a family into the chaotic nature of where the U.S. city was viewed at at that point. So his first film was two newlyweds in a city like that. And uh, they start to have their first conflicts. And that was Barefoot in the Park, which is a Redford, uh, Robert Redford and Jane Fonda movie. Um, And then The Odd Couple is another one of those movies that takes place in those really high, congested parts of the city. And so um, it was really interesting in going through those other plays that you were mentioning. um, He said the first version of The Odd Couple, he made scenes that were funnier. He wrote more gags, more slapstick into it. And the audiences didn't really like what was happening to the characters. They felt meaner. They, they were devolving to them. He had made them like them. And for the sake of comedy, um, people didn't like how far they were going uh, down the hole, if you will. And he rewrote The Odd Couple to have more warmth in it and fewer laughs. But what happened after they rewrote that play and tested it out, it got way more got way more applause, bigger reception, and he had found that you know, he said, you can be funny over here and you can be funny over there, but don't lose the heartbeat of the play or in this case, the movie. And I think that that sums up Neil Simon's comedic writing so very well. He also goes on to write dramatic stuff, as you mentioned, Lost in Yonkers. But I think he also put it well. He said, I neither see life as tragic or humor. I put both in both of my plays because that's what life is. And 
I to me, these are reasons why Neil Simon stuff just is landing so well. It's highly relatable because he writes that in that manner. I'll still never forget that one line that's in The Odd Couple, and it still sticks with me, where he, um, Oscar says to Felix, Felix, I'm tired of you leaving little notes under my pillow. We're out of cornflakes. F you. You know, it took me three hours to figure out that F you stood for Felix Unger. <laughs> and see, like you hear lines like that, and you just, you can't help it. You can't help but laugh because it's just so true. It just, you know, it's like, it's stuff like that where it just takes one line. If it could just take one line to get a whole audience to be laughing hysterically at just the thought of that. It's, you know, you know that you've done a great job as a comedic writer. Yeah. And he said that so many people would come up to him. Women in particular would say, man, I go through that every day with the odd couple or man, the the out of towners, like his ability to hit multiple perspectives and to write beyond just the main character. It's really good, really good stuff. I mean, I think that's why he is such a good playwriter because he's able to handle these complex relationships between well-developed characters. Although Nathan, you were saying you didn't find that the characters' motivations were fleshed out as much, so maybe maybe a little bit at odds with what you were saying. They have sort of a broad stereotype of motivation, but you don't get a lot of personal moments in this. If you th- you're sort of describing some of these comedy moments that in other things have a very individual, unique feel. Where my feel of this movie is that it's, it is, as much as it's extremely relatable and broadly relatable, it doesn't feel unique to these characters. It doesn't feel like this is something that only they could really be going through. It is sort of a broad shot, uh, which isn't to say that it doesn't strike real sort of true feelings and things that are hilarious and relatable, but it also has that risk of sort of, at least for the first half of the movie, especially when, as we've been talking about, Gwen is a little bit more restrained. It does have a feel of a little bit of a generic shot at, oh, traveling is rough. And when you leave your own home city and try to apply your micromanaging self to a situation that really would be best dealt with by letting it sort itself out a little bit and taking a break, that that sort of is my criticism of that. Interesting. Now, Arthur Hiller, we haven't talked as much about him. Carly, how do you feel like he does as the director here with the material? I mean, I feel like as a director, I mean, maybe there were... I mean, I didn't think that he was necessarily so horrible, like critics were saying. I mean, it's not like I felt like there was anything in his directing that stood out as, you know, anything so distracting or anything. If anything, I would say maybe there were some scenes where I wish it could have been a little more heartwarming than it came out. Like even at the end scene, when it came to the whole monologue that Gwen was doing where he, she's uh, speaking to George about all the reasons why they shouldn't move to New York, that they should go back to Ohio. And then he says his, his famous line at the end where, Oh, every, I said the same thing word for word. I wish there could have been, an embrace or a kiss or just something. And it felt like it just cut and immediately went to the next scene. I felt like certain scenes like that, I wish could have had more warmth to them. That's an interesting point. No, you, that's a really good point. I do. I'm thinking of John Hughes is really good at bringing warmth into moments, whether it be like home alone or planes, trains, automobiles, even dirty scoundrels and stuff like that. I mean, that's a very good point that you make. Uh, There's warmth there, but it's, it's not much along the way. 
And even I read that uh, Jack Lemon actually, because he he said he loved being a part of the movie, but he said when it came to the finished product, he actually wasn't happy with it. And it had nothing to do with Neil Simon, but it was because of Arthur Hiller. Because I think he said that there was there was this scene. It was like a five-minute scene that Jack Lemon wished could have been included in the final cut, and they took it out, and he felt like that scene would have been a great character transition moment, and for some reason they cut it out. No one knows what happened in the scene necessarily. That's what I was going to ask you. I was like, "Ooh, you ha- yeah, that, that, that's very tempting no to know." One, yeah, no one knows. Uh, yeah, I don't think anybody knows what was supposed to happen in the scene, but he just felt like it, whatever was supposed to happen, it would have been a great character transition. I think, and for some reason they cut it out. And I think Jack Lemmon felt if they kept it in, it would have been a much better movie. But yeah, I think he said that he just he didn't feel like Arthur Hiller was the best director for this kind of project. Interesting. You know, and he's at the peak of his career, Hiller. I mean, he is nominated for Best Director uh, this year, in 1970, with a movie called Love Story. Um, and uh, this is, I, I think Neil Simon enjoyed working with him. He goes on to work with him twice more, once again the very next year in a movie called Plaza Suite, and then again down in 1984 on a movie called The Lonely Guy. Um, so it's interesting, I guess, that um, Hiller and, you know, uh, what's this? Uh, Neil Simon seem like they go together uh, well and enjoy working together. But it's it really you've made a very good point. Both of you guys have in terms of um, have finding moments of warmth along the way because it doesn't do that as much. It's a short movie, though. It is. It could really take that five minute scene. M- none of my criticisms of this movie have anything to do with time. It This movie flies by. There's no there's never a dull moment. Um so, man, give me that five minutes. Give me, give me that something to latch on to that I'll take with me for, you know, whatever scenes come after it and apply. And yeah. No, that's a, yeah, that's fair. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Hiller's an interesting guy. I mean, he grew up in, he grew up in Alberta. You know, he was a Jewish kid uh, in a family who, he we had no theater background, but he just enjoyed putting on plays uh, for further, uh, you know, Jewish community group about 400 people or so. And it was there that he just got that taste for the stage and theater. He served in World War II and, uh, you know, he came back, just went to college and got his master's in psychology. And it's interesting that um, he kind of ended up working in a Canadian broadcasting company. And then it's interesting how he just kind of fell through the loops. It's interesting how much luck it took him to get in the position of a highly acclaimed, or I should say, a prolific director who had so many projects throughout his career. So often on this show, I'll look at a director's career and I'll sit there and go like, man, they, they get like five or six movies and it just really peters out and like the quality drops. And this guy keeps the projects going. It falls off towards the end in terms of the quality level, but he stays busy. And I just was really interested in that one. I mean, um, it was uh, the Americanization of, of Emily 1964 movie with James Garner and Julie Andrews was an early film for him and it got nominated for two Academy Awards. So early, early in his career, he earned this reputation for being able to make a sophisticated comedy and to walk the line of intelligent and thoughtful comedy. And so that is one of the things that Hiller, um, you know, drew him to Simon. If that's, if those are things that you're known for and people are looking for you, Obviously, Neil Simon's a, a really big click, and he says, 
quite honestly, I, that's the, exactly what I was looking for. Stories that initiate a human condition and the underpinnings are a cerebral, emotional, communal, and psychological uh, element. They go together. And that's the storyteller's main responsibility is to resonate with the audience's psyche and certain something at the end of the day to all that is emotionally to move the audience, to compel the audience to get it on a visceral level. And when you start reading how he talks about what he's looking to do in directing, I mean, I can see why he he probably wanted Simon back hard after this. I mean, the can you imagine knowing that that's his perspective that these two came together three times over? So, um, um, and it's um, it's also really interesting how with Arthur Hiller that considering this is the same director who did Love Story because Love Story is very much a melodrama. So it's kind of like even the point I was trying to make where I'm not saying that the out-of-towners definitely should have been a melodrama, definitely not at all. But it's interesting how he was able to make um, those those warmth melodrama scenes for Love Story and that he couldn't find some way to incorporate some kind of uh, a little bit more warmth in the out-of-towners. It's almost like he probably felt that these are just two completely different stories from each other. Like let one be a romantic melodrama and just have the other one be a completely classic comedy and just have them be two completely separate things. And that's it. Now, Nathan will know. uh, I know Nathan shares this. Uh, I I love cities. I'm an architect and I, I love, I love bringing people together. I like the inspiration of an urban environment. And so uh, it's interesting for me to see a movie that, as you mentioned earlier, it doesn't paint a very nice picture of the city, and it kind of has that you know white flight mid-century mentality that's, um, which was I think a false image in many ways, and it had a lot of negatives that were unintended that came with it. Um, so it's interesting to me when you go back. Obviously, this is a product of its times. So you understand that that's the mentality it's coming from, and there is comedy to be mined there. But um, Nathan did that. I, I sense that maybe this might have also hurt your enjoyment of the movie, just your love of, you know, the built environment cities and, you know, New York City itself being presented so poorly. Man, you know, they take off from this what would now be considered retro future tiny little airport and fly around New York City. And they do have very nice shots from the air. That's uh, that's another thing this movie has over its 90s counterpart that... uh. That movie has this terrible CGI New York City that they show in the fog. Um, but, uh, but this movie has these wonderful aerial, aerial shots of the city. But once you get into the city, you're right. It mostly shows what the negative stereotype of cities are. It's that they're full of back alleys. They're basically a bunch of hotels. There's no real living space. The park then is almost this in the wilds kind of thing. And there's so many people. This is really a movie that is afraid of people. It's afraid of, you know, anything to do with the kinds of things that you don't find in a small town America kind of setting. Yeah. Carly, Carly, we're both incredibly biased given what we do. What about you? Where's your perspective? Like, how do you take the, you know, the dichotomy that they have between urban versus suburban ideals here? I mean, it definitely is a stereotype, uh, of course, like to make it seem like, okay, obviously pick the suburbs over the hustle and bustle of New York City and everything. And But I feel like I feel like it's it's a certain kind of person that can handle the city compared to the suburbs. Um, I know a lot of people who even tell me, oh, I, I would never want to live in the city. I prefer the suburbs. You know, I don't 
I don't need to have all this excitement. I don't, you know, acting like, okay, it would give them a headache uh, if they actually lived in the city compared to just visiting. But then there's other people that, that can handle it, you know, that have lived there for years and they know how to handle themselves in all these situations. And this movie showed an example of a couple that is meant to just live in the suburbs that were not able to handle necessarily the challenges that come from living in a city. That just wasn't, it wasn't for them, especially considering um, the character of George, you know, someone like him who is very neurotic, very anxious, worried about everything. Definitely somebody like him does not belong living in a city and everything. So yeah, you could say that it's a, it's a negative stereotype, but at the same time, we can't deny that the things that happen in the movie haven't happened to other people, I'm sure, who've lived in a city. I'm sure many of people who've been in cities have been mugged before, have lost their phones, their their luggage, um, things like that. I'm sure um, people in the 60s have dealt with strikes like this, where they affect an entire city and affect um, how much food or, or drink you can have throughout the night, uh, everything like that. So yeah, I, I would say, honestly, I mean, believe me, the movie had to show a negative portrayal, I guess, of New York City, because um, that's what made the movie funny. That's what made it what it was and everything. It was just the the comedy of just every turn something goes wrong. So I feel like they, they had to show that for the movie for comedic purposes and everything like that. But I would just say, I don't think it's anything for people to be upset about when they watch it, to say, oh, the way that they're showing off New York, nobody's ever going to want to visit this city now. You know, it, it's funny. You take light in it. And I'm sure people are still going to want to visit New York City no matter what. So... And you know what? In fairness to the movie's portrayal of New York, there is another character who shows up later in the movie at the hotel. Happy Gil Lucky, he's let things fall as they may, had a very similar situation to what the Kellermans have gone through, but he just kind of waited it out, <laughs> let things happen, shows up at the hotel, and he's checking in very successfully, and as if there was never a problem in the world. He's had sort of a weird night in the lobby, but you know what? Whatever. He didn't feel the need to go running off he just let things be and it's been it's been fine for him so on the other hand i I, you know you could almost paint this as it's totally their fault for being the neurotic people that george or you know it's george's fault for being so afraid of things not going totally right and seizing the reins and trying to take control and not realizing that hey the point of a city is that there are systems in place and redundancies so that ultimately situations like this do get sort of sorted out you just have to trust that those systems are somewhat there whereas you know out in smaller town areas you do have to do things yourself more and that's how places are set up for so it was very funny to see that character because that really paints that that does help paint new york city in a better light in this movie that it's as much these own characters fault as it is new york's I feel like some of the hardest laughs I got from this movie were moments exactly like what you're talking about, Nathan, where you realize they've made it very hard on themselves. And like that man who just stayed the night in Boston, got up early and called and reserved his room and came there and nothing bad happened for him. And it so could have been, uh, you know, that could have been the case for George and Gwen. But and Gwen probably would have let it go that route, too. But uh, you're right. George's frantic nature of I'm stu- I'm in Boston. I can't tolerate being in Boston for another minute because Boston's not New York and New York's where I need to go, which honestly, I kind of relate to that nature that that uh, yeah. George has. And but um, 
you know, it's it's really very funny, and that's why I laugh so hard at that because my quick to act personality sometimes have I have had moments where like that where you're just like I got where I needed to go. I worked extremely hard to get there. And sometimes it didn't have to be so hard. And, you know, I don't beat myself up about it as much as he does in this case. Obviously, the stakes are higher for him. But gosh, that sure is funny when you're just like, oh, you know, those little moments of like, oh, it's working out fine. And like you pointed out, the little redundancies of of being in an urban environment. It's just like, oh, yeah, they trust the system. They will find your baggage and worry about what you can control and not what other things you can't, and you'll get there. And I just thought that uh, that was something I related to so much in this, and really, really funny moments. So I'm glad you brought up the airport too, by the way. That's the MacArthur Airport in Islip, Long Island. It's lovely. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, I think this movie's really pretty in the beginning, and that's not an incident. Uh, They shoot the suburbs in a very flattering manner. A lot of you know, crane shots. A circular on the hood shot. Yeah. That was an unusual thing. Yeah, rail rail shots, uh, crane shots, really smooth camera work, wide angles that make it feel open, lots of light, space, and you feel that in the photography of what he's doing. It's pretty. And when he gets to the city on the trains, a lot of handheld, a lot of fast action. Things are moving around, jumbled. When they're running in the rain, it feels very claustrophobic and very frantic. And that's not as pretty of a movie to look at, but that's the feeling that they're going through. That's where a majority of this movie lives. So if anybody's hard on Hillary for how it was presented, I think he did. I think he did a very good job of conveying the mood in those moments. So um, I, I think the camera work reinforces that a lot. And I think the soundtrack does as well. Uh, you know, there's a shift in how the music's presented as well. Yeah, this is an interesting movie for its music. The music is making a play to compare this to George Gershwin's American in Paris suite, which is a very similar idea. American goes to Paris, has misadventures, isn't used to the way that the that these Parisians do their cities, is driving around, honking, there's music there, and uh, at the very beginning of this movie, there is sort of little very subtle references and the funny thing is that in the remake then it's made really explicit that that is what it's going for it's like a jazzier version and it's it's apparent the whole time but i do find that that makes a kind of cool musical connection of saying like hey this is this is a fun story and it's a fun presentation of it but it's not the newest story you've probably experienced it yourself and even if not there's been art of this before so it's it's uh it makes an interesting connection there um do i think there should be more of the music i would love to hear more of the music um again i think uh, a lot of these scenes are sort of shoved back to back to back and there's no time for a beat in between so it's not necessarily the music's fault but i could do with a, a little bit of a show tune kind of note in between things just to just as a little bit of an accent oh okay okay carly do you feel like the music uh you know supports or um is how did you how did that go down for you um i think it definitely um i felt like i'm glad that the music wasn't overwhelming i'm glad that the music was there just depending on it reflected the situation basically like um in the scene when there was a whole um getting into the wrong car and having there be a whole car chase that's when the music got intense or um 
yeah, and then there were times where the music came off as very comedic, like, oh, I found a Cracker Jack in the park, and then you think it's going to be this joyous event, but then no, then the dog comes in and then totally grabs the uh, the Cracker Jack, so then you could tell then the music gets more um, comedic then. And then there were other times where it felt like the music probably came off as a little inappropriate, like at the, the final scene in the end with the uh, hijacking of the plane, you know, this is a this is a pretty bad thing that happened, but yet we're supposed to see it as a, a comedy. So then they have like this like up uh, upbeat music at the end for a hijacking. I think a hijacking has more weight in a post 9-11 world for us than it did then. Yeah. Also, at the time, and there were there were deaths and crash planes and things, but there was a like there's a there's a Wikipedia page of the entire history of Cuba related airplane hijackings, and there are dozens of them. This was this was like a thing during that era that was happening over and over and over again. And like everything else in this movie, it happens to happen to this couple at the same time so uh I, th- I think it would have been a little bit more of a uh in the moment kind of thing and perceived a little bit differently is it even though yeah it's totally dangerous it wouldn't have had it had anywhere near the effect that it has watching it now yeah i i loved how it ended I think Carly mentioned this earlier. I was expecting George to just not get the job and to go home and just have Gwen be like, I didn't really want to be here anyway. And then him be like, oh, really? And that's what I was predicting would happen. None of that happened. He got the job. It didn't matter that he had his tooth busted and that he smelled bad and all that stuff. He got the job and they decided to not go there together. And I really liked that. And then you could have ended the movie right there. But in tone with the comedy, I love nobody saw that. Like they take they t- this movie takes sharp left turns. And this oh, is another yeah. one of the sharp left turns at the end when the, it gets hijacked. I have a lot of nice things to say about how this movie wraps up. Yes. And hey, Cuba, which I have been to a couple of years ago, is pretty cool. Yeah. Especially if you like older cars. Like it's so it's like a classic car kingdom down there oh yeah um well maintained beautifully driving around everywhere oh they're awesome and cuban food's awesome and the truth is because even i spoke to my mom about this uh, about with the final scene with the hijacking and you know she even told me that back then when it came to um hijacking it wasn't considered like how we view it now in a post 9-11 world where we expect hostages um, and deaths and injuries and everything. It's like back then when there were hijackings, no one really, I mean, well, I'm not going to say this for the record. I'm sure it, worst case scenarios have happened. But for the most part, I think back then people didn't die during these hijackings. It was more just a matter of, you know, rerouting the plane and just, you know, taking over the plane and that's it. But it wasn't really a matter so much of people getting killed when these scenarios happened. So, and certainly not flying them into a building, you know? Yeah. Right. So back then it wasn't really necessarily um, supposed to be this horrific situation. I think back then it was just supposed to be considered, okay, so we're not going home. We're going to a completely different country. And that's where the humor plays into it if this movie was remade again today there's no way that scene would be able to to be there considering in a post 9-11 world people would say that it's way too dark maybe even racist possibly i don't think a 
scene like that would would go over very well today. And I think I even uh, read even in the TCM article that they said when they first released this movie on TV, they actually cut that scene of the hijacking because I think um, it was during the time of the Munich Olympics. Oh. And it felt like mm. it was going to hit too close to home uh, back then. So they actually cut that scene when it was released on TV. Ah. <sighs> See, I'm 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 one of those people's like freedom of speech. Like, if you know, comedy needs to have its freedom to be able to breathe. And yeah, I don't like I don't like removing that. That bothers me. I understand how it might not be aired on TV <laughs> right then during the Munich Olympics, but um, yeah, I don't like cutting the end off of that. That bothers me. Like I said, you could have just ended on that warm note, but um, that just doesn't fit the tone of what this movie was. So uh, it's my favorite part of the show. You guys ready to hand out some awards? Absolutely, Carly. Who is your MVP of the out-of-towners? I feel like I would have no choice but to pick uh, Jack Lemmon and Sandy Davis. They really did carry this movie from beginning to end. You know, those two really were the stars and uh, just the most entertaining aspect to me of uh, the whole movie. So, yeah, I would pick those two. All right. So Sandy Dennis and Jack Lemmon, which is kind of the a great choice there. You know, Nathan, are you going to reflect that as well or are you going in another direction? I very similarly. I think that they both do a fantastic job. I do think that Sandy Dennis takes half the movie to really come into her own. And I think it's because of the writing more than anything else. But um, Jack Lemmon takes the cake as as my singular pick here. Um, they both do a fantastic job, and uh, I will spoil my supporting pick as it's Sandy Den- Dennis here because I mean she's great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, I went with Neil Simon for my MVP, and I think I've I, you know gushed so much about how much I love Odd Couple and how this is written, written, and I just feel like there's a certain way that he has the ability to relate to the real situations. And it may not be as comedy dense, but I'm glad that somebody out there is writing like he's writing because it's unique. It's special. And um, I, I'm really glad that somebody out there is writing in that manner. And I, too, like the slow burn. I like when all the bad stuff happens to somebody and finds the humor in it. I think that helps you in your own life get through the bad moments. So um, I have nothing but really nice things to say about Neil Simon. Um, Carly... Who is your best supporting? Okay, so for supporting, um, to be honest with you, I didn't really, I didn't have an answer to that because I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the cast that was in the movie, they didn't really, it wasn't like in the remake where you had a character like uh, John Cleese's character that definitely would be considered a supporting character. Uh, I kind of felt like in this movie, um, a lot of the, a lot of the other characters were probably around for just one scene and then we never saw them again. Had kind of one or two liners and then that was it. So for me. Honestly, I I couldn't. This one I stumped over. I couldn't really pick it. You guys are both right. Like I see how Nathan split his two, taking a lead and taking it down to the supporting. There really is no second tier in this. And as as Carly said, with supporting, I picked Anthony Holland, the desk clerk at the night desk. Uh, I felt like of the people that he encounters along the way, I felt like he was receiving Jack Lemmon's wrath a little more severely, and um, I thought his performance was quite good. Uh, But you're right, Carly, like there really are two main leads. There's like no supporting. And then there's these tertiary characters. So you have a really deep set of people who you could pick for a hidden gem. So who was your hidden gem or what was your hidden gem? I would say my hidden gem would probably be the exploding manhole. (laughs) We we didn't mention this, but uh, that manhole was way too close for comfort. It was it flew. It was supposed to just fly up 
to his like knees and um they oh oh no they they put too much pressure on the it's an actual heavy manhole and it flies no way, way up in the air and they did not have a stunt double in there that is jack lemon actually standing there and not only is it too close for comfort um it it comes down pretty close to his head where if it hits if it hits his head he's i mean it could even kill you but i mean yeah. like concussion hospital knockout like um misses his head by not as much as you think it might look like there but it actually on the bounce does hit his leg and he is hurt off of it but he's a true blue actor and he acts through it and he gets the scene that's the cut they use and they don't do it again (laughs) yeah oh my gosh i was sure that must have been some sort of a cardboard or styrofoam thing that they kicked up there because that is practical, man. And Jerry, uh, I felt so bad for when I rewatched it because when I, because I heard, I read the trivia of that scene before watching it again. So knowing that everything was real, I felt so bad laughing out loud when I saw J- Jack Lemon's reaction to having um, the top hit his leg. But I was just like, oh my god, I felt so bad for him. But I was like. It obviously was great comedic timing, of course, and the fact that it was real, you know, so. No, you're right. It worked out. That makes that little hop he does just yeah, so the little, much funnier. Like, the hop and then his facial reaction. It's like I felt so bad for laughing knowing <laughs> that it was real, but it was, I, I couldn't. It was just so much Yeah, fun. absolutely. That's a great pick. Uh, Nathan, what's your hidden gem? Billy D. Williams as the guy at the baggage claim who gets totally... He's one of the early ones who gets threatened with legal action and put on put on the uh, the legal hit list. That is uh, one of the recurring characters of this movie. I love that list, and man, early Lando Calrissian. Oh man, great to see Billy D. Williams. Something about his voice, something about his coolness, always finds I find it very relaxing. And in a in a role where you're supposed to be stressing them out, I was kind of sitting there going like, oh yeah. I feel better now. You will find my luggage. Like there's something very reassuring about Billy D. Williams. Like, like I feel like he's a really good dude to bring bad news to you. Obviously, that's a good that he comes early in this movie because the other more bad news is worse later. So I thought it was appropriate that he comes early as far as the bad news goes. But yeah, like I was sitting there going like, you know, I've been mad. I've been tired, delayed, rerouted and lost my luggage. I've had some of this stuff happen to me. And, you know, I did I did give people a hard time at the counter. I didn't threaten to sue them and take their name down and all that stuff. But I might I probably said some things that weren't nice to them of just like, you know, more just more just running down of like, I can't believe you treat people this way or something like that. Obviously, it's not you. And I'll give them that space. But the whole thing here, I'm not being treated well. I want a free ticket, basically, to fly anywhere I want next time. It's basically the angle I'm taking. Um, but, um, you know, with Billy D. Williams telling me that, I'd be like, oh, you're right, Billy. Thanks. Could you just explain that one more time in the same voice? I just want to listen. Yeah. Sorry, long Billy D. tangent there. Um, my hidden gem's going to be Robert Nichols. He's the man in the airplane. This guy is just so good at rubbing in the fact that these guys are trying too hard. And he gets some... For being on screen so little, he gets some really good laughs. Um, yeah. So, uh, recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, Carly, who would it be? This one, I actually had a lot of picks. I feel like if this was a recast around the 70s, probably Woody Allen and Diane Weist, I would oh, probably put together. That's great. Oh, 
And That's if it great. was maybe more of another modern remake, if you went with maybe a more older cast, I would think um, maybe Larry David and um, Jackie Weaver from uh, Silver Lang's Playbook, maybe. Oh, these are great picks. Wow, you went right to the top with the, yeah, that's, those are, those are all fantastic. Nathan, what about you? If you had to recast somebody and put someone else in their place, who would it be? Well, I mentioned It's a Mad, 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 Mad World over at, earlier as a movie that I love as another movie that has hilarious couples dynamics going through. So if we absolutely had to replace one of these leads, which I don't think we need to here, I'm sort of just doing it because, but if we were to look for someone to sort of take over to uh, get Gwen Kellerman a little bit more impetus at the uh, at the first half of this movie, I'm just thinking of the way that Dorothy Provine plays Emmeline Marcus Finch from It's a Mad, 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 Mad World as the wife of this guy whose business has failed and who has gone through these horrible, like a mental breakdown and he's recovering and He's so stressed out that he can't have any minor thing go wrong. And uh, I think that that is the energy that I want brought to this movie. It's not a bad choice. Yeah, it's not a bad... Like I said, in some ways, uh, I think that their choice to go with Sandy Dennis was uh, unexpected. It worked out great, though. My recast, I'm taking... I'm chickening out. I'm going deeper into the cast. And I feel like the waiter on the train, there's nothing wrong with what Johnny Brown does. But I thought somebody goofier... Maybe a little more portly, maybe a little more sloppy around the edges would be funny. And I think he actually, funny that you mentioned that, I think he's in a Mad, Mad, Mad World too. Uh, Buddy Hackett, uh, who's from The Music Man, also the love Everybody's bud. Everybody's in a Mad, 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 Mad World. Yes, gonna say, yes he is. Yeah. Um, Buddy Hackett Reggie? would be. Yeah. I, I would like to expand the, you can't have, like, like, what can't I have? And actually drag that out a little bit longer to get down to olives and crackers for you. But um you know, I, I like Buddy Hackett would be my choice to give him a hard time in the in the dining car. Um, best right. shot of the movie, Carly. Best shot, maybe it would be when the two of them are running from the police in the park. Probably when you have that whole running shot of the two of them. Yeah. And, um, and also, I, I do have a second one. Um, a second one that also came to me. I think, honestly, the scene when... In the end, when Gwen goes through her whole monologue of why they should stay in Ohio, I just really love the look that George gives her when she's going through this whole thing, that there's just so much love and admiration through that one look in everything that she's saying. And it was such a relief to see a shot like that, because considering throughout the whole movie, we kind of saw a lot of tension, a lot of bickering between them. It was nice to get um, a sweet moment between them right there. I I love how he comes in the room and he gets down to the same level that she is feeling close and connected and the camera zooms into his face as he does that to bring you, the viewer, into them. So those are all great choices. Nathan, best shot. Well, as has been alluded to much earlier in this, we're doing this around Halloween. So I'm going to pick a shot that just felt so perfectly Halloween-y that I couldn't, I couldn't pass it up. This is the shot while they're both asleep in the park. And then a mysterious figure walks over in a cloak. And it slowly pans up the silhouetted figure's body until finally <laughs> Gwen just gives one of her wonderful, Oh my god! That's the best one, too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
good use of darkness for sure. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> a very good choice. Um, my my architect tells me to pick that airport because I mean they make that airport look really mm. cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but um, in terms of the cinematography, I gotta give them credit when they're running in the rain. There's something so frantic about the shakiness of you know the chaotic nature of running through a town that you don't know in the rain the wrong direction um again seems like something that could have happened to me um where you like you dash out to your car and then you realize your keys are back at your desk and you're in a torrential downpour and you have to run back through the torrential downpour to get back to your desk and like and then back through it again to get to your car and you're totally wet at that point in your work clothes so i think i have had that and i think that the camera work at that moment only really reinforces that so that's my pick there but um carly made uh some good choices there as well i'm glad you picked the heartfelt moment i'm glad nathan you picked the dark (laughs) like the going black (laughs) so um best scene carly um back to this um the manhole scene because like i said that one just made me laugh the most uh when i saw it it's just one of those scenes where you're just like you're thinking Okay, you know what? What could possibly go wrong? Especially when you first watch it, because he's giving this whole speech in the middle of the street. So here I'm thinking, okay, is this guy going to get hit by a car? Is it going to rain? You know, what's going to happen? I know something will, and you would just never expect that an exploding manhole is is going to happen, and then he ends up losing his hearing for a, a short part of the film. As a result, it's just one of those things where it's like, what could possibly go wrong? And then a literal boom. there you go that is a good i I was halfway expecting to see like one of those like people who are you know street corner people who are like kind of kind of crazy like they look disheveled like their hair looks crazy and they're talking about how it's the end of the world right now and i i I could see that guy being like (laughs) buddy relax like i would like to see the crazy guy be like wow you're crazy so um no uh nathan what about you what's your best scene so you guys have mentioned the scene at the end where George describes that he's gotten the job to Gwen and they have the wonderful moment of getting that. But the scene directly before that, where he walks into the office for the interview as if he's going to the gallows and the music is literally in time with his footsteps and it is like he is marching to seal a doom that he will be then experiencing forever of being trapped in this city and it finally just as the door is closed and you just hear oh wow i wasn't expecting you to actually make it given everything that happened oh it was nothing it's just such a great scene and my best scene it it just has to be from the heart i've talked about it so much already how that end scene where george tells gwen that um they love him they're gonna go back to ohio and that, you know, it's okay to give up on this dream that he had and to realize that he has everything he needs. It's just so fulfilling and it's you can't top that. For laughs, it's not getting out of the police car and then being taken into a crime scene yeah. and then the crime robbers hijack the car. That is beyond, like, this movie starts to go from, like, oh, these are inconvenient traveling things to, like, this is hilarious, like... This is as bad as it gets. Um, so um, that made me laugh the hardest, though. Yeah. Carly, what, would you, what, what is your funniest scene in the movie? I think, well, the manhole scene, but then also, 
I thought it was very funny just how the two of them walk into a church thinking, okay, we're safe here. Let's just pray. But then no, they get kicked out of the church. You can't pray here. You can't even pray. And and at that point, you're losing it with New York. How it's just like, come on, we can't even be in a place of worship. And you just feel like, oh, like, like you're strangling someone after that. It did seem yeah. so illogical. If you yeah, can get through. Here, if, if that was me. Surely, I of all places. Me, you're out. If you're bad enough to not lock the door, watch the door, let somebody come into the come into there, you kind of owe it to them to just be like, I just want to pray for five minutes and then we'll leave. Like, like if, you, if you've screwed up and it's on you at that point where you're not supposed to be and just like, okay, five minutes, but you got to get out of here so I don't get in trouble. Like... You're right. Like that, that situation was very funny. Like, nope, you got to go. There's something so not churchy about that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, exactly. So they, they said what they were, they were filming something in the church. So they had to like kick them out or something. Yes, they did. They were preparing for Easter Sunday show. Cause this would have been, I guess the Thursday before Easter. So, um, what's your best wardrobe or makeup moment, Carly? Um, honestly, I would say maybe it was the way the two of them looked when they were going on the plane to New York before it got routed to Boston. Um, I really liked the outfit that Gwen was wearing, um, the dark blue top that she had on. And, um, you know, it was it's a good it, I felt like that was honestly probably one of the best um, looks that the two of them had. It was like that look and then on the, the plane trying to go back home. Because then throughout the whole movie, it really is just them being drenched, looking worn out, you know, um, like looking sweaty. Um, the suit is out of place and everything like that. So, but then again, you could argue, I'm sure you guys could argue, maybe those were your um, favorite wardrobe moments, considering that's where the hilarity ensues. But yeah, I would say probably my personal favorite is the way the two of them looked um, heading to New York when they were on the plane. Okay, yeah, Nathan, what about you? What's your best make wardrobe or makeup moment? I mean, I agree with Carly completely that for me, the hilarious part is when these wardrobe pieces just start getting completely out of whack. And for me, the hilarious moment is when Gwen gets out of the car that they've that they were kidnapped in briefly and <laughs> has lost her shoe in that car. And it's like, what more can you do to these people? I also had Gwen's heels as my wardrobe moment. One was busted and lopsided. And then it's only fitting that the other one's like completely run over and the heels popped through that one and her like heels just walking on the ground at that point. So the saddest set of shoes ever, which then leads her to wear his shoes, which is really, really funny in its own right so um yeah she hurts her foot by uh stepping on the on the blast so it's immediately like her i honestly just her i honestly felt bad for the most honestly throughout the whole movie because especially when you see just the final well not the final shot but when you see the shot of her in the hotel and she looks like she's going to pass out on the uh, at the service desk because of everything that she went through that she's basically walking around the streets of new york with um, basically busted feet, but it's like, you know, you don't have a choice but to just keep going and going. You know, her, I really felt so bad. That's why I could relate to her when finally she was able to put her feet in the tub of the hotel room and that look of relief she had. I was like, yes, I am with you on that. I would look the exact same way if I was in your shoes. Nathan, you know what? There was one moment of 
warmth that we were looking for. And I, I would like more of this to your point, but when he picks her up and carries her, even though he has no business doing that and he's completely overtaxed and he totally hurts himself and they, you know, like he breaks down doing it. The I'm going to carry you because, you know, you're hurt and I won't, you know. So that's why she loses the ring. It's because he couldn't carry the ring, but he could carry her. As, as oh, I was gonna say, as they were as they were getting tired there, uh, you know, that night, I like that. You know, he has, he's so over the top, pushed past his limit, and yet he's gonna carry her. I liked that. So um, change one thing. If you had to change one thing, Carly, what would it be? In my opinion, I think honestly, I would have removed the scene when um, they were mugged the second time in the park because. I guess I thought something darker was going to happen. But then, of course, I'm like, this is a comedy. It's not really supposed to go to that route. Because when he wakes up and he's all by himself, I was like thinking, could she have been kidnapped or something? But then it was just a matter of, oh, no, I found the Cracker Jack. And then the whole time you find out, oh, uh, I gave your watch to the man because I thought he had a a knife and everything. And it was like that whole thing. And I was kind of like, I don't know. I was kind of like, they already got mugged once. Did we really need to have a second mugging? where it was just a matter of, okay, give give your husband's watch away. I kind of didn't feel like the watch. I mean, I can understand if them saying the watch, because then it's like, how will you know what time your meeting is supposed to be without that watch? But I kind of felt it, it wasn't really necessary to have a second mugging. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I, I, I had fun with that one still, but uh, I, I see where you're coming from. I did think it was going in a worse direction. Um, um, yeah. Uh, Nathan, what do you think for your change one thing? Well, we've been talking about how this movie has been criticized by certain New York political figures for showing up New York in a bad light. So as someone who's from Pittsburgh, let me recommend a scene that would be representative of our city because there's a scene in this movie where they try to get on a bus, but get kicked off because they don't have any money. But what I'm proposing is that they do get on the bus. And the bus ride does go for a while, but in a very Pittsburgh way, a sinkhole opens up in the street and the bus falls into it. That did happen. That's true. That yeah. did happen. We're not known for sinkholes, but it, that's what made the, made it even more wild. Yeah. Um, might change one thing. I, you know, I was going to come in and say use the tertiary he- characters for more humor uh, and insert some more comedic role people in that. And you know what? I've backed off of that and talking about what makes this so Neil Simony. It doesn't need to go slapstick in those moments. And what it does need is kind of what Nathan mentioned. More of those moments where, you know, George is carrying Gwen. Or I would like a few moments where there's just a little break in the action where they're all sitting there wet. And Gwen just like, you know, wipes off her husband's forehead and said, this is going to be okay. And momentarily calms him down. And little moments of reconnection and warmth like that would be would go a long way to elevating this to a whole other stratosphere for me. So um, in talking about it with you guys, I changed my change one thing. So um, best quote. Carly. So for um, for maybe dramatic quote, um, like, well, maybe not dramatic, but more heartwarming quote would be the line at the end when George, after hearing um, his wife's whole monologue for staying in Ohio, how he said, that's funny. That's what I told him word for word. I thought that was just amazing because I remember the first time I saw that scene, I thought that was going to lead to another fight between the two of them. And it didn't. It was literally him saying that is exactly what I told him, you know, right on cue. And then as for uh, comedic, I would say my favorite is when they're on the plane and the stewardess says to George, I imagine we'll run into some bad weather. And then he responds saying, 
You don't have to imagine. Just look out the window. <laughs> yeah, there's a... <laughs> that is good. Nathan. <laughs> That's exactly what I would say, too. It's like, oh, you imagine? I'm like, we're on a plane. Look out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, what's your best quote? I love the scene where George Kellerman runs out into the street and finally just has like a total mental break and starts shouting at New York City itself and finally says, well, I'm a person and persons are stronger than cities. <laughs> that, that, is a, that, that is a great moment. That whole speech is just wonderful. Uh, I, I am like Carly. If you ask me what the best moment is, it's, it's that long run that Gwen gives, you know, about how, you know, all the things that the city doesn't, you know, where there's not enough room to walk, people don't smile at each other. You know, people don't live on top of each other. It's very negative towards the city, but then he says and gives up his quote unquote dream, I guess, and what he wanted really, really bad because it didn't make his family and his wife happy. Uh, that's the best. You can't top that. But also, I would say my favorite funny moment was when George said to uh, Gwen, he's like, you can't walk. You have a bleeding foot. And she goes, well, I would fly, but New York's fogged in. So I just thought that that was that momentary, like, that cool level-headedness that she has, that she hasn't lost her humor. So, Carly, we have come full circle. This is our time on a five-star scale with half-star intervals. What would you rate the out-of-towners? Out of five stars, I'd probably give it a four. Okay, that's a, that's a great choice. And Nathan, what about you? This is a two and a half for me. I sensed that you were going to be cooler on it. So actually, you, you hit about where I thought you would be. Um just not the the lack of warmth is is what's keeping it from going up higher for you or yeah exactly i just i feel like this movie is touching on something that could be really great and there are really great moments in it um but you know one more draft five more minutes could be even better yeah i i i i'm picking up on your sentiment i'm i'm just not docking it as much i'm with carly i i'm i'm on the four uh, scale. I think that this had the ability to take it to the whole next level through talking with you guys by making a few ads. But what is here is very enjoyable. I will recommend it. I will totally watch it again. And I really enjoyed it. So um, it's a four. Uh, just because there's room to improve some things uh, is the only reason I'm keeping it where it is. So Nathan, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I do, Russell. What's on the list? You know who else has a lot of bad things happen to him and does a good slow burn himself? Who's that, Russell? Ben Stiller. So we have three movies from Mr. Ben Stiller. We have Mystery Men from 1999. A group of inept amateur superheroes must try to save the day when a supervillain threatens to destroy a major superhero and the city. Option two, Zoolander from 2001. At the end of his career, a clueless fashion model is brainwashed to kill the Prime Minister of Malaysia. And option three, Night at the Museum from 2006. A newly recruited night security guard at the Museum of Natural History discovers that an ancient curse causes the animals and exhibitions on display to come to life and wreak havoc. Next time, we will be going with Mystery Man. All right. Mystery Man. Movie ahead of its time. We'll, find, we'll have fun with that one. So, uh, Carly, thank you so much. You are a great guest, by the way. Yeah, and through all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us, so we want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the show on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Give us a like on Facebook. Email the show at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. 
Any contributions you make will be towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Nathan? What kind of an attitude is that? These things happen. The only reason why these things happen is because this whole country is filled with people that when these things happen, they just say these things happen. And that's why they happen.